0: Hello, everybody. My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to the Things Observed podcast. And today I have a very special guest, and I'm very excited to have him on today. And we're going to be discussing all kinds of things UFO, alien, abduction related, and whatnot. And it's going to be a really great conversation. I have on Tanner Boyle. You can find him on Twitter at TannerFBoyle1 as his handle. And you can also check out his sub stack, Getting Spooked, which is uh, just great. And we're going to be talking a lot today about some of the stuff that he's written about. But you should go ahead and check out his sub stack because I've been reading through everything on there recently. And it's been incredibly informative. And it's also just really entertaining stuff. And it's a good read. So everybody check it out. But anyways, Tanner, how are you doing today?
1: I'm good thanks for having you on and uh thanks thanks for that really nice introduction uh, I'm blushing a little bit, but uh I really appreciate it
0: no you are you're you're very welcome um i I do mean that I was incredibly intrigued by so much of the stuff, and you do a great job at writing it, but also just everything in the u f o field i mean You don't even have to, like, dress it up or try that hard to make it interesting because it's just such a wacky, um, you know, bunch of characters and stuff. Um, So anyways, I guess that my first question for you is just what made you kind of decide to, because your substack is kind of, you know, all related to the uh, UFO abductees, the paranormal. What made you decide to, you know dive so deep into this subject and to really kind of focus your research in on it.
1: So I've always been pretty interested in paranormal subjects. Uh I was I'd call myself a Fortian, like a Charles Fort follower, um, but that's kind of faded in recent years as I've gotten jaded by I mean, having <laughs> pretty much uh the entire subject matter. Um i still find it really fascinating really entertaining um but my my more recent turn was just kind of sparked by uh an interest in parapolitics and uh how that's related to the ufo and paranormal question is something i i think that i mean it comes up a lot but uh, i think it's important to examine it in depth uh and you know, my background is paranormal, ufology, uh, so that's sort of the angle I'm coming from. Uh, with like little parapolitics sprinkled in there for fun.
0: And I think that you do a really good job at you know showing the intersection between these kinds of two subjects because they're truly inseparable when you start to dig deep into it. And I really think that it's the only way to actually understand the phenomenon, or whatever it is that you know people want to refer to it—that's you know going on. And so, um, you in one of your first Substack articles discuss an event that I think is you know kind of very illustrative of what it is that is you know kind of going on with the phenomenon. And it's largely considered, um, um, I believe is what you said, to be the first major UFO abduction story, that being the abduction of Antonio uh, Villas Boas, um, if I'm pronouncing that correct. So could you tell us the story of Boas and how this possibly, you know, um, what, what does this, you know, kind of show uh in the context of, you know, the wider, you know, alien abduction phenomenon and, and stuff as it is.
1: Uh, so Vilas Boas was a farmer in rural Brazil in the 1950s. And
2: uh, he,
1: he one night in the middle of the night, was he sees a light in a field and eventually the light comes to him and basically chases him down his tractor dies and um, it, it's sort of the classic like car stopped. Um, you're, you're at the mercy of this ufo um, kind of thing and he he gets abducted which at the time uh, there there is basically no alien abduction it's all in the popular culture it's all uh like we're still talking, like, fairy folklore, things like that, but not, not interactions with ETs in this way. And, um, yeah, he, he gets taken on board this craft. He is subjected to medical tests, and he... I mean, it gets really bizarre, <laughs> but uh, he eventually has intercourse with, I guess I would call it a strange alien babe, and, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, they, they, which, I mean, we, I laugh, but that also is sort of a recurring element in abductee stuff is, you know, the sexual aspect of it, uh, the breeding aspect of it uh, continues to come up. Like, the gray aliens want us for our seed and eggs and kind of things like that. Um, but yeah, and uh, they, they eventually drop him back to Earth. Um, he, he has, like, illness for the next week or so. And he tells the local UFO community about it. And well, it it kind of stayed limited in scope until I want to say the early 1960s when um, the American ufologists kind of latched onto it started publishing about it um, but yeah uh, after that it along with Betty and Barney Hill became like the the shining example of like alien abduction um, as we understand it today
0: And something that I really love about you breaking down kind of what happens um, in this case, and, you know, you write about this on on your substack, is that we can kind of see that from the get-go, there there is, you know, more to the abduction phenomenon than, you know, uh, meets the eye, and that, you know, there's kind of reasons to be... um, suspicious of you know kind of the narrative about whether it's extraterrestrials that are involved with this so could you tell us about how this story you know relates to someone who i uh can't remember who it was who who said this but um ufos ufology's biggest pain in the ass rich reynolds and uh, a conversation <laughs> that he had with a man by the name of bosco Nedelkovic.
1: yeah so uh i don't i don't give rich reynolds that title but uh i can't help but love that others have um i've talked to rich a few times and he's he's been a really helpful and uh thoughtful guy um, and to me being UFOlogy's biggest pain in the ass is like that's a that's a mark of pride <laughs> i um, would agree yeah back then, I, w- I would wear it with honor <laughs> Yeah, I, sometimes I try to strive towards that on Twitter. But um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, he talks with this... Uh, he's anonymous at the time, but he's going by the initials BN, and he has these the series of phone conversations with him. And within, he talks about how a incident... That sounds remarkably similar to the Phyllis Boas abduction. He was he was part of it. Like it was a CIA operation. Um, At the time, this BN was a USAID employee, Um, but as we know from things like uh, Dan Mitrioni uh USAID could sometimes just be a disguise for the CIA in um in the global south um and this BN was a man named Bosko Nedelkovic uh in, he has been like my obsession for over a year now <laughs> probably uh he, he Claims that he was part of a covert operation, where this team of, I think, seven people on a helicopter would track down, uh, knock out, and bring people on board to do. I forget the exact wording, but it's um, it's basically like novel methods of like torture, or interrogation. Um, and it, it's not said explicitly what it involves, but if he's telling the truth about it being Villas Boas, we can assume that uh, some form of hallucinogen or drug that altered his state of consciousness um, could have been involved and made the whole incident have uh, this like bizarro alien um you know very odd <laughs> veneer
0: absolutely and uh something that i thought was really interesting and i didn't even put this together when i was reading your initial um articles on Netokovich But then I read, I believe it might have been your last one, and you draw a comparison between him and someone who I've talked about on the show um, multiple times, and that is Edward Mm Lansdell. And I've uh, discussed on here before, you know, the whole, uh, you know, vampire psyop that he was up to, and you drew some comparisons between the two of them. So would you want to speak on that just a little bit? Because I think it does a good job of showing that. Maybe this idea that, you know, it was some sort of, you know, CIA op or something isn't that far out there when you really think about it.
1: Yeah, so uh Nedelkovic making this claim that it was entirely a CIA operation um, does sort of fit, like, other incidents. Like you said, with Lansdale... Um, it's it's shows that these operations are sort of capable of utilizing um like paranormal or supernatural folklore and in the case of Nedelkovic it was like a folklore that hadn't yet existed <laughs> but nevertheless it's uh was kind of born of it and i, I think it's certainly the case that once the alien suggestion was brought up, um, the I, I think Mark Pilkington speaks about this in Mirage Men, But after the Villas Boas incident, um, the main investigator, Doctor Olavo Fontes, was approached by uh, representatives of the Brazilian Navy. I, I believe is the entity. Um, and they they basically told him yes, UFOs are real. Here are pictures. Uh, you know they they wanted they wanted the UFO explanation to be the one that came out of this. Um, it was it was it's nothing but helpful to them to like obfuscate the idea that it was an operation. Um, yeah.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, uh, for those who don't know, I mean, Lansdale, kind of what he did to play on folklore is he uh, and kind of like a proto Phoenix program thing that was going on um, would take, you know, um, guerrilla fighters who were, you know, enemies of who. Um, America was helping out and they would take people and drain them up their blood and leave like fang marks on them because there was, you know, vampire folklore and stuff. But I think that's a very interesting distinction that you make about how there was kind of like that existing folklore. Um, But in the Boaz situation, it was, you know, the creation of this folklore. And now, I mean, I think especially in the American psyche, I mean, aliens probably, you know, rank higher in the, you know, um, collective mind or whatever than uh vampires do but with Nedelkovic, it wasn't just the uh boaz situation that he uh spoke spoke about um didn't he also talk about the uh Skorten affair or scorton affair
1: i i have a i have a british friend who uh i used to call it the skriton affair but apparently it's skriton <laughs>
0: Aha! Uh, so we we had three different ways to say it, and we got it all wrong. Okay, so it makes me feel good. I'm always pronouncing things incorrectly, so I'm, at least I'm in good company yeah. on that.
1: Well, it, it it's spelled very oddly, which is fitting because it's it's one of the stranger like footnotes of ufology. Like no, no one really even thinks about it, let alone talk about it. Um, but it it was actually what spurred on the call from, uh, Bosco Nettelkovic between him and Rich Reynolds. Um, Reynolds was under the impression that Nettelkovic could give him information on the Skiritin. See, I almost did it again. The Skiritin affair. Uh, and instead of that, he got this whole story about Vilas Boas, but, uh, in Skirton, you have this this uh, gardener named Ernest Arthur Bryant. And he claims to have he wasn't abducted, but he claimed to meet an alien come down from a flying saucer. And it's more in the vein of like the Georgia Damsky contactee stuff. Um, very very love and light Very friendly, very human looking. And uh, Bryant uh, sort of like tried to make this a big, uh, like, relation to a Damsky. I mean, I'm saying that the reading of it in modern ufology is that it's a hoax. I kind of sort of wonder about it, if only because Nedelkovic talks about it. Um, but uh, Nedelkovic says that when Bryant had his initial experience, um, certain, uh, so- certain people in the CIA and the NSA uh, who were working jointly with uh, people in Britain decided they were going to continue to amplify this man's UFO experiences. Um, And I I should say this is pretty much all of um, Nettelkovic's conversation with Rich Reynolds is allegedly there's not a ton of corroborating evidence, but it's nevertheless, like, enticing. Um, But that said... uh, in, in the course of trying to amplify his UFO experiences, they apparently used a variety of drugs and microwave weaponry or microwave tools, I guess. Uh, and eventually this man died of a brain tumor and Nedelkovic. uh he implies that Bryant essentially died because of the microwave weaponry and the drugs that he was given. Uh, And again, it's like very... I mean, it's super dark, first of all, but it also is like sort of a precursor to later operations that have been more verified, um, such as the the uh, Benowitz Affair, which is dealt with in Mirage men and uh, Project Beta.
0: Absolutely. It seems as if these intelligence agencies were driving people mad from the beginning of this whole little project of theirs. Um, <laughs> so you also reveal a bunch of other things about Netokovic that are very interesting. So I mean, do we maybe want to just touch on a little bit some of the stuff outside of the directly, you know, um, UFO related antics that he was up to? Because, I mean, he was, you know, wanting to start all these uh, communities. He was kind of a utopian, uh, maybe like a a eugenicist of of sorts and and stuff. I mean, uh, so who was Nedelkovic aside from, you know, someone who was possibly involved with, you know, these, uh, intelligence agency operations, you know, to kind of, uh, foment the, um, abductee phenomenon.
1: Nidalkovic is one of the most interesting people I've ever encountered. Um, he, first of all, he was born in Belgrade, Serbia. But spent most of his early life in Paraguay. Um, pretty from a pretty young age. If he's telling the truth, he was working with USAID. Um, we're we're talking from like the age of nineteen, um, and eventually he makes his way to. America and continues working as a translator and a linguist at the Inter-American War College in Washington. And, I mean, that's, that's sort of interesting enough on its own, uh, because that would make him able to rub shoulders with, you know, a variety of different figures. Uh, um, but sort of on the side, and one of my main questions is whether it was truly on the side or if it was part of his, um, his like duties as an alleged CIA agent. Uh, he would write these glowing proposals to different people in government, business, uh, you know, sometimes academia and he he, it, it's sort of like this um i'll, I'll put it as the, the simply as i can uh he he wants to do like this experimental model of society where people are taught how to be self-sufficient in a way that they don't really have to work uh, the work is voluntary but it gives them skills to um It gives them skills to be self-sufficient, um, which is interesting. I am a little wary of it, uh, mostly because in some proposals, he would say that the that this could only be implemented by like paramilitary action. and um, I, I, if, if such a system were to work, I don't think a paramilitary, uh, thing would be the way to go, um, but yeah, he he's sort of interacted with this wide variety of people. We've we've uh, we talked about Lansdale a little bit. He did try to um, correspond with Lansdale, and I'm I'm not sure if uh, Lansdale ever responded, but I do know that. A letter from Nedelkovic was at least in Lansdale's collection. Uh, so that is a little odd, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I uh, have never tried to get in contact with someone like Lansdale, and I don't think the average person has either. But um, he also tried to uh, get in contact with a, like a former CIA director or something. Was that right?
1: yes uh so vernon a walters who was ca director for a brief period uh deputy director for a longer time i believe under nixon and um Netelkovic essentially met him as he was working at the war college and again it's like you're rubbing shoulders with you know god knows who at <laughs> at different functions at the war college um, not, not to mention that a lot of future South American leaders and politicians dare I say like people implanted after a coup <laughs> are basically educated at the at this place um, and yeah he, he, he would send these proposals, to the CIA director, and I I, I do just wonder if that was just like, you know, misplaced optimism or something else, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, no, he's, he's someone who, as I was reading, and I mean, you know immensely more about him than I do, but as I was reading through some of the stuff that you dug up, He's someone whose intentions are really hard to decipher, but, I mean, also in addition to talking to, uh, you know, these CIA guys and whatnot with, you know, sending these proposals and whatnot, he wrote for a number of, like, big publications and
1: stuff. Yeah, yeah. So he has articles appear in, like, uh, the International Development Journal, uh, at the time, uh, he has a few articles appear in, like a well, a relatively uh, popular anarchist journal, just called Anarchy. Um, you know, it's, and <laughs> I mean, this is much later on, but he actually had uh, several letters to the editor published by. Uh, the new york times and i think i've seen one in time another in like popular mechanics uh he just uh he, he pops up in a bunch of places and it sort of is like i it's almost impressive to me but again i can't really parse the the motivations um but there's always that um there's always that concern about his uh, CIA ties having something to do with it even if it's not like it's not like something you can say is a foregone conclusion, you know.
0: Yeah. And I mean, some of his writing, I mean, really spread pretty far out because one of the things that I found very humorous was the fact that he angered uh, the fascist traditionalist Julius Evola by uh, writing about like the you know how the future is going to be non-monogamous or something, and uh, I mean Evola was at the time <laughs> in Spain or something, right? You know, so I mean his writing, you know, really went pretty far out there.
1: Yeah, and if I remember right, I think it, I think Evola found his, he found a pamphlet that was like distributed in Italy uh was where he found this but but again it's like how how <laughs> how did he come across this and why is Netelkovic appearing in yet another place you know it's just it's just bizarre and i mean critical critical support to Netelkovic in this matter you know this
2: is <laughs>
0: You know, something else, too, that once again just kind of adds another layer of complexity is, you know, there is people around him who said he was, you know, genuinely this utopian guy and stuff. But it also seems as if he was kind of like a, uh, for lack of a better term, like a soft core eugenicist. Like, uh, I mean, I don't know if he was, you know, exactly measuring people's craniums or, <laughs> or anything like that. <laughs> But um, he he wrote some interesting stuff along that, and uh, so would you want to talk about that and some of the uh, groups that he was involved with that kind of fall along those lines?
1: Yeah. So it, just because of the generation, it's a bit hard to um, it's a bit hard to pin him down. But he was definitely involved with like early sex education groups. That, you know, it it had its uh, it had its growing pains, and that a lot of the people involved were basically eugenicists. Um, in in particular, he worked with uh, the heir to the Procter and Gamble fortune, uh, uh, Clarence Gamble, uh, who had this organization called the Pathfinder Funds, in um, various south american and caribbean countries um and later on that pathfinder fund would be implicated in some pretty big scandals uh i, I believe they were related to like the oh i can't remember the name of the it's like an inner uterine device that's basically Enough. sterilized people and gave a, but i can't remember the name of it
0: i can't either um
1: and he was uh, also but,
0: involved with planned parenthood right for a time
1: i i don't know if it was it may have been like international planned parenthood uh which uh which sort of was related to the Pathfinder Fund. There, there was a lot of, like, intersections between the doctors mm. and activists that would spend time trying to do these things. Uh, but, but the concern is that Gamble himself was involved in the Human Betterment League in North Carolina, which basically spent its entire time it's entire existence sterilizing uh blacks and retarded people and you know like just like incredibly incredibly bad like uh and again it's it's like Nedelkovic may not have been aware of that uh but there's also the possibility that his views didn't his views weren't that far off. Um, one of his New York Times op-eds is like super worried about overpopulation. Um, I mean, a lot of his proposals were, were like aimed at rural regeneration. Uh, sort of like a primitivist thing. Uh, so I, I think he did have this fear of overpopulation. That maybe resulted in some not too not too good views in hindsight.
0: Yeah, and once again, I mean that just makes it one of those things that makes it hard to decipher where he's coming from. Because to be fair to Nedelkovic, this was kind of around the time that like Paul Ehrlich's The Population Bomb came out and in a lot of academic circles. You know, you had people who were I'm very worried about overpopulation, and in my personal opinion, um, I mean, all the predictions of, like, you know, Ehrlich, you know, were um, entirely false, and I think that it was, you know, very inflated and that there was some shoddy research, but, I mean, anyways, the, this stuff going on about overpopulation was an interest among everyone from, you know, um, neoliberals or, um, you know, certain, you know anarchist out there all the way down to, you know, eco-fascist and and stuff like that, you know, who are worried about, you know, overpopulation in third world countries or something. So just the fact that he was, you know, um, concerned with, you know, overpopulation and maybe had some slightly eugenic ideas um, doesn't, you know, necessarily mean that he was, you know, once again out there measuring craniums or anything like that. But it is just something to uh, take into account and it kind of makes you wonder about him but another thing just before we move off Nedelkovic, because there's also a lot of other stuff I would um, like to get into um, on this show I had uh, John Brisson on to discuss the finders and I've also had um, John Klaizak on to talk about Barbara Marks Hubbard who um, you know had some ties to them and I also talked about that with Brisson but something that I found interesting is that Nedelkovic um, possibly had a connection to the Finders. So, um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Because they were, you know, um, very active in, in the counterculture of that time. And so um, I just think it's very interesting to see, you know, this tie between um, Nedelkovic and, and the Finders. And it was just another one of those things that's mind
2: boggling to me
1: well yeah and and it has just like intelligence uh network implications uh that kind of stretch a little further because of nekovvic's inclusion um but uh Netalkovic is basically mentioned in it's called the Finders memo in some places uh Brisson called it something else uh uh, I can't remember what he said, but uh, basically, this document makes the claim that Netelkovic, uh infiltrated the Institute for Policy Studies on behalf of the finders. And while I can't like, I can't say that I found that Nedelkovic was definitely. Involved with the finders, I can at least verify that Nedelkovic was in correspondence with the Institute for Policy Studies, which was like a, is a more progressive think tank, um, sort of around in the '60s. I think it's probably most famous for being where, uh, I mean, that's that I believe that's where the Pentagon Papers were handed. At one point, or they or they were at least thought of as a potential place to uh, leak the Pentagon Papers to. Um, but Nedelkovic was corresponding with different members of this group, and uh, further than that, Nedelkovic uh, was involved with the School of Living, uh, which which again is like this sort of um, rural collectivist primitive living group uh, run by uh, Ralph Bursati and Mildred Loomis. And uh, between Loomis and Marion Petty, the founder of the Finders, you definitely have connections, and I, I think Brisson talked about that a little bit in your guys' episode together. Um, but just to, just to say that Nettelkovic was part of the School of Living, like a pretty enthusiastic member, um, and the School of Living uh, basically had a retreat at Mary Petty's farm at one point, around the same time that Nedelkovic would have been involved. And Kovic was also DC area. So again, it's like the, the chances are are definitely there even if they're not, like, verified. Um, but uh, again, I, I think uh, I, I was honestly surprised the finder's memo was verifiable in that kind of way. Because <laughs> I, I thought it was going to be, like, I thought it was going to be like impossible to find any sort of uh, Bosco finders connection.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's surprising where um, this stuff will lead you sometimes. Which, speaking of, maybe I will try and kind of shift things back into uh, the uh, UFO abductee realm and stuff. Because it's funny how when you get going down these rabbit holes, you can almost forget that you got started here by, you know, um, the, the prospect of extraterrestrials and what have you. But another case that you've written about that I found particularly interesting is that of Gary Irwin, who was kind of the first American abduction experience or one of the first American abduction experiences, um, reported. So could you tell us a bit about this case and, uh, you know, also, like, what can we like draw from stories like his that kind of share a little bit of um, that we can gather information from, you know, that of other early ab- abductees like Betty and Barney Hill?
1: So, so, the Irwin story comes from this great book called uh, No Return uh, by a guy named David Boer. And it's a really good read. I definitely recommend it. Uh, Nedelkovic comes up in it, uh, unsurprisingly. Um, but uh, Jerry Irwin was this... Uh, he was a soldier, and I'm forgetting the base, but I believe it was out west. Uh, he basically goes uh, missing at, at some point, and in the uh, in the Utah deserts, he encounters something, and he, you know, it's it's one of those like super vague like, I saw a light in the sky, and then I woke up in, <laughs> I woke up in the hospital kind of thing, um, and. You know i think i might have the location wrong i don't know if it was utah oh man i was right it was utah um uh, so so he he has this horrible case of amnesia and he is basically treated by doctors at um i believe it's fort bliss and he they they don't really find anything wrong with him, but also his medical files aren't exactly crystal clear. He he has blackouts and amnesia and obviously if you look at this from the non-UFO angle, it just seems very, very suspicious. Um because they're beyond like a light in the sky, which Jerry Irwin thought was a a plane that was about to crash, um, it's honestly just like more baffling than anything like extraterrestrial. Um, anyway, he's treated uh he he does like a sodium atal interview. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote directly from the book here. Um, when he's under this truth serum interview, Jerry states, there was a special intelligence that he couldn't explain to me since it would be incomprehensible to me, which, he, which has directed him not to remember or not to tell me about any of the events in Utah. He says that if he tells what was behind the incident in utah there will be a big investigation that he does not want to be bothered with and also it will harm many people and he doesn't want that to happen uh and it's it's just very very strange after this initial uh stint in fort bliss he's sort of given the okay to go back on duty but he again sort of has blackouts and amnesia. And in a sort of trance-like state, he goes back to the scene of his disappearance. And this, this, is, this, is, this is the most bananas part to me. He recovers his jacket that was on a bush, and he finds a slip of paper in the pocket, and he burns it without reading it. <laughs> uh, yeah it's it's just really bizarre uh he's treated again and eventually it it sort of goes the same way where they're like nothing's wrong with you Despite blackouts and amnesia and he eventually uh despite being back in the army he goes AWOL and uh, eventually spends time in Leavenworth, but when this author, David Boer, talks to him, it's... He he doesn't remember much of his time in Leavenworth, or, like, really much of his army experience at all. (laughs) Uh, And one, one of the more interesting... Uh, factors to me is the is the uh, fact that he would eventually do like reconnaissance work in Germany, um, and uh, he he would he he basically taught East German sorry he taught West German uh, army people how to like infiltrate enemy. Like radio communications, uh, like like he was doing intelligence in like Cold War <laughs> intelligence, even after all of these bizarre incidents, um, and I, I I don't know quite what to make of that. But if you were to take the stance that it was some kind of MK Ultra experiment with like post hypnotic suggestion put in place. I like can't help but notice that his role in Europe after his release from Leavenworth is like, I mean, that's, that was the goal of some MK ultra programs was to make the most perfect spy. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like a, a Manchurian candidate of, of sorts. And I think that's what's interesting about Irwin's situation is kind of with like a lot of um, abductee or people who come into contact with, you know, supposed extraterrestrials or something. It's impossible to piece together all the parts of their story. But if you read through the story with kind of in the back of your head that this is, you know, some sort of intelligence operation going on it has so much explanatory power to explain these situations that otherwise really would make no sense and would just be the epitome of strange. Not that they're not strange with the intelligence operation aspect in mind, but I think that's uh, what's so powerful about, you know, um, with what you're kind of trying to do with your substack, showing that intersection between the parapolitical and these, you know, supposed UFO and abductee, events and stuff like that is just the explanatory power that it has
1: yeah i i mean i i think it's like in the current climate where like the et thing seems to be pushed more and more um it's it's just worth considering how much more likely it is that it's some kind of operation uh if only because we have more proof that operations of this nature have taken place in the past, um, whereas we don't really have any proof of alien contact. Um, it 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 is, and it's it's always like military related. It's always military people telling us the story. Uh, it it really just. Um, it's it's been a it's been a complex and useful subject matter for uh, the Department of Defense for a long time, and I'd say into the present. And uh, in in the case of Jerry Irwin, again, you've got like, um, you've got this being taken by the UFO crowd, and then suddenly. It becomes a ufo story instead of anything else um and it's it's still like (laughs) you know uh what if it wasn't a ufo thing oh you can't think of it like that because it's it's ufology now it can't leave that realm
0: (laughs) yeah and i mean especially i mean the idea that you know i mean he's taken by you know Um, for like evaluation and given, you know, truth serum drugs and and stuff like that. I mean, the idea that, you know, some that these ideas could have been seeded and that it's, you know, hiding some sort of human experimentation or something, you know, is um, definitely not beyond the realm of plausibility, especially when this is going on during the time of the MKUltra experiments. And I also think that another thing of utility to kind of the, um, extraterrestrial hypothesis. I mean, you know, as you said, a lot of the time, these stories are being given to us by people in the military, and in intelligence. And I think that it takes a lot of people who would be, you know, conspiracy or parapolitically minded, you know, to be skeptical of authority and stuff. And it turns a lot of people on their head to where, they, uh, you know, use it as a sign of credibility and authenticity that, you know, this general came out and told me that the aliens are real. So it, it can kind of serve as like a bit yeah. of a bait and switch for skeptical people as well.
1: Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's definitely like, you know, I, you should never take an argument from authority, I think is what you should learn from uh from the whole UFO debacle as it's currently unfolding and how it's unfolded in the past like um you're going to be lied to and what you're told even if remotely true is going to be a limited hangout you know
0: absolutely well i was planning on asking this question a little bit later but it seems fitting now so Do you think that there's been any significant change in ufology circles since its inception? Like, how do you think the culture of those interested in, you know, extraterrestrials and abductions and whatnot has changed since the days of Betty and Barney Hill now in the days of, you know, the Stephen Greer's and Tom DeLongs of the world? Or has it even changed at all, really?
1: That's an interesting question. Uh, because in some ways, nothing has changed. <laughs> uh, but in others, uh, it's almost like worse now. <laughs> um, I, I think in the present day, there seems to be this um, I don't know, it's probably always existed, but it's just more clear because everybody's online that there's this like intentional factionalizing um you know the whole like disclosure movements on on various websites i'm most familiar with twitter uh but it's i assume it's elsewhere but you have these people who will listen to figures like lou elizondo um, david grush our, our our new poster child um and they will take the opinion that what these people say is to be listened to because look at all those look at all those stars and stripes on his chest you know uh and I, I feel like it's always been kind of that, but now it's you're you're really bludgeoned over the head with it. Um, like, sure, in the past, the most the most uh, credible witnesses were always like military, you know, police, what have you. But now it's like. Yeah. The only people who can talk about this are intelligence agents, and it's, it's just bizarre to me. I, I, I feel like you'd get a better story, a more verifiable story from nearly anyone else who has ever seen a UFO.
2: And I know that nothing will change